It's a time for reflection and kind of reviewing kind of where you've been and where you want to go. And I've, I don't know what the reason is, but for some reason I've been doing that a little bit more this year than I usually do. Maybe it's because I've been at home essentially for nine months pretty much. And so there's a little more to reflect on or a little more time for that. Um, but I kind of looked at what I'm doing as, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, just personally, um, and just kind of wishing I was doing better um, kind of in all of those areas than I am right now. So I began to think of how I could improve, things I could do, and I think a lot of us do that with resolutions and saying, I'm going to commit this year to do these things, to lose weight, to read my Bible more, to pray more, to do certain things. But then I had this realization that it never really works out, right? We go a couple of weeks and then it kind of fizzles out for the most part. And I think one of the reasons is, is even though we have this new desire or new thoughts, um, when we go out and try to do those things, we're going with the same family to the same job or the same situation. We have the same temptations. We have the same struggles. We have the same even desires that we did before. And so usually those things overcome what we are trying to do. And so what I'm labeling that this morning is it's opposition, right? All of those things are essentially opposing us trying to do the things that we want to do. And the same thing is true in our Christian faith. We have all of these things that we want to do, that we want to try to do, that we want to do better, that we want to reach out, that we want to serve God, that we want to serve Him wholeheartedly, that we want to see people come to faith and people baptized. But there's still the opposition in the world around us. And so and sometimes that's ourselves, right, to doing those things. And so what we're looking at this morning is opposition to the mission of following God, and we're going to be back in the book of Mark. And so just to kind of recap where we've been, we're going to start in chapter 6, um, verse 1. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, um, it's page 892 in your pew Bible, or you can follow along um, with the Version app or just the Bible at home. So we've been looking at kind of the journey of discipleship in the book of Mark and kind of what it means to be a disciple. We've been talking about who is Jesus and trying to understand who he really is, what he has come to do, what his mission and purpose is. We've seen a lot of the language of, of insiders and outsiders, of those who are in, who are hearing the words of Jesus and responding, of those who are outside, right? those who are not responding, those who are opposing, those who are against what Jesus is doing. We've seen from very early on, actually in chapter 3, there's already opposition to Jesus and the authorities, and religious leaders are already plotting for how to get rid of Jesus. And so... What we saw last time, um, before we did our Advent series, is we saw the he healing of the bleeding woman. The woman had been bleeding for a long time. She touched Jesus. She was healed because of her faith that Jesus could heal her. And then we saw Jairus and his daughter, and he came seeking out Jesus and saying, my daughter is going to die. Um, can you come and heal her? And all of that happened, and then he eventually um, raises her from the dead um, because they thought he was, Jesus was too late. But as we always know and say, Jesus never shows up too late. He always shows up exactly when he's supposed to. And so he did that because of the faith of Jairus to raise his daughter. And so that's kind of where we've been and where we're picking up the story. And so we're going to pick it up in chapter 6. We're just kind of going to read this in sections. Um, and then we'll go through it um, piece by piece. So let's look at 6 verses 1 through 6. And it says, He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. 
Where did these, this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And so they were offended by him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. So we see in these first six verses, Jesus goes home, right? He goes to the synagogue and he begins to teach just like he would do kind of everywhere that he went. And when he taught there, it says they were astonished. They were surprised. Now you may think if you're just reading this kind of at face value, that that means they were impressed. Um, like, hey, our hometown guy has gone off, he's learned all this stuff, he has a good education, he's done lots of great things. We put the build-a-board up in the front of this, of this town, right? Home of Jesus, birthplace of Jesus, like you see some places. Um, but that's not actually the case. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these questions that they ask um, in what they do, these five questions, these five things, and see what is really behind those things. And so the first three kind of come together. Right? Where did he get this teaching? Where did this authority that he seemed to have come from? Where did this wisdom come from? Where did he get the power to, be, to do miracles? And you might think, hey, they're just kind of wondering, they're curious, they're trying to figure out what's really going on with Jesus in the, these statements. But at this point, they have heard lots of stories about what Jesus is doing in other places. What he is doing and what he is saying is not new to them. They know what he's been saying, and now they're seeing it up close and personal. So if we take these three together, what this really means is they don't believe that Jesus, what Jesus has been saying, that he is sent from God and God has given him this mission um, and this wisdom and this power and this authority. They don't think that God gave him these gifts, and that's made very clear in the next two questions. The next question is, isn't he just a carpenter? And so what they mean here is, isn't he just a common worker just like us? He grew up here. We saw him as a carpenter grow up. He does work. I have one of his pieces in my house. It's really not that great. Nothing to, you know, I wouldn't sell it to somebody else if it works good in my house kind of thing. I don't know if Jesus was a good carpenter or not. We never know that. I'm assuming he was decent. Right? But that's kind of the thing. They knew him and knew his work and knew what he had done. So he's nothing special. He's just like us. He's just a common worker. He can't do these things. And then they ask, isn't he the son of Mary? Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but in this time, children were always referred to in relation to their fathers. And so saying you are the son of Mary means we don't know who your father is. So you are an illegitimate child, which back then was a much bigger deal than it is now. And so they're saying, look, we don't know where you came from. We don't know who your dad is. There's all these stories about what it could be, but we don't think those are true. So you're essentially an illegitimate child, and there's no way that God would use someone like that to accomplish his mission. There's no way he is going to do that. So behind their questions, we see unbelief in who Jesus was claiming to be, and also a little hostility. 
right? Not pride in their hometown boy who grew up there, but antagonism for him coming back and saying, and talking to them this way. It actually says they were offended by his teaching. It's more like, right, the, the hometown kid or the kid from your family who goes to this fancy college and learns all this stuff, and then he comes back and he tries to tell everybody what to do and what they don't know and how much smarter he is than them. Maybe you've experienced that or you at least know that concept. That's kind of how they reacted to Jesus in his teaching. I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I think he was trying to help them, but that's how they saw it because they were too familiar with him and his family. They saw him as just a man like them and nothing more. And in questioning his birth, they're again saying there's no way God could use somebody like that to do his work. And so Jesus experiences opposition from those in his hometown. And his response is, right, the famous statement, you've probably heard this before, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And I think this is really true, and I think it also helps us understand why doing ministry in your family, especially if you have people in your family who are not believers, is really, really hard because they know you really, really well. And they know probably sometimes more about us or about you than you know about yourself. And so that's what makes ministry so hard. And then we continue to see him, what he's trying to do there in verses 5 and 6. It says he can't do any miracles. Um, And then it says, well, he just does a couple, right? I would be glad if like no miracles would just mean a couple for us. I think that would, we would be happy with that. But it's a far cry from what we've seen in other places where like the whole town shows up and he heals people over and over and over again. And there's many, there's multitudes who are healed. So what's the difference here and in those other situations? Well, here there is no faith. They refused to believe that Jesus was capable of doing these things. And so therefore he couldn't do much. And I think this requires a, a, reveals a couple of important things. One, that faith is required for a miracle of healing or what I'm going to call the miracle of salvation, of coming to faith, in coming to believe in Christ, to surrendering your life to him. It requires faith. God doesn't force himself on a hostile or even a skeptical people or person. So unbelief sort of limits what God can do for you. So if you're wondering, why isn't God doing more? Why isn't he revealing more? Why isn't he helping me grow? You may start by asking, do I really believe that God can do that? Do I really believe that he has the power that he's going to step in? Do you really believe that he can save you? Now, what I'm not saying is this. The more faith you have in God, the more he blesses you. That may be true, but it's not definitely true. What I'm saying is, do you actually believe that God is powerful enough to move in your life, to work in your life, to overcome the temptations, the struggles, the addictions, the challenges that you have? Right? Do you actually believe that that is true, or do you doubt, or do you not actually believe that? So here we see Jesus' response to this unbelief, and his unbelief says that Jesus was amazed. Now, throughout the book of Mark and the other Gospels, we see lots of other situations and things that happen that say the people were amazed. This is the one and only time in the book of Mark that, that he says Jesus was amazed. The only time. And so it's a big deal that he is surprised that they don't 
believe. They had enough evidence, just like everybody else that was around him, to believe what was happening. So this meant they were essentially ignoring the evidence and choosing not to believe. They were responsible for their unbelief. And this is a direct contrast to what we saw last time. And if you're reading through this, um, you would have just seen the faith of the woman and the faith of Jairus and his daughter to be healed. They sought out Jesus. And so this is the opposite of that. And so we see Jesus experience opposition in his hometown. Now, next we're going to see that the disciples should expect opposition. And so we're going to see that in verses 7 through 13. And it says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on an extra shirt. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And so first what we see here is Jesus sending out the disciples. And this is a continuation of the mission that we've seen from the beginning of the book of Mark. And I'm going to connect those dots for you with the verses. And so we see Jesus beginning his ministry in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that says this, After John was arrested, we'll come back to that in a minute also, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So we see Jesus beginning his mission, repent and believe. He begins healing people, casting out demons, which we've seen in the stories that come after that. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 15, this is what, when he first brings the disciples together, this is what he says. He went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, to have authority, and to drive out demons. And then again in verse 6, we see the same thing. They're sent out to preach, to have authority, and to cast out demons. It's a continuation of this mission. And so the twelve are essentially trained messengers of Jesus' mission and they are being sent out just like Jesus to do those three things, to proclaim repentance, to have authority, and to heal people. And this is a little interesting because what we've seen so far from the disciples, right? They haven't been the greatest at really understanding what Jesus is truly here to do. We see them often very confused by what he's trying to do. And then we see them not really believing that he can save them in the midst of the storm in the sea and lots of confusion. But even in the midst of that, they are still sent out. And so up to this point, the disciples have kind of been extras in the story or in what we're seeing, but they are going to be major and integral part of what happens next. And then Jesus gives them instructions as he sends them out um, don't take anything extra, no extra money, no clothes, no shoes, nothing like that. So these instructions are designed to require and demonstrate a few things. Peace, trust in God, and urgency. Right? If you don't take anything with you, you have to trust that God will provide for you. There's no other way to do that. You don't have extra money. You don't have extra clothes. You've got nothing. So he's essentially sending them out and saying, you need to trust, you need to believe that God will provide for you. 
He will take care of you, and he sends them out in that way. Um, and then he, a sense of urgency, right? Because if you don't have anything, there's a purpose behind what you're doing. I need to get to the next town. I need to find some place to stay. I need to go preach. I need to go do these things so that I can accomplish this mission because I don't know how I'm going to last because I don't have any food. I don't have any money. I don't have any place to stay. So it builds this sense of urgency into them. And then what I think he does next is he prepares them for opposition. And that's what he says in this next part. And he basically says, when you go out, some people are going to welcome you. They're going to bring you into your house, and if they welcome you in, you should stay there. Now, that part is important culturally because what would really happen is um, traveling teachers and preachers were more common then than they are now. Um, and so when they showed up, what would typically happen is somebody, some guy would show up in town, he would begin teaching, um, he would stay at somebody's house, and then if somebody better, who had a nicer house and better food, said, why don't you come stay with us, then they would just keep moving up until they got to the best house with the best food and the best views and all of those things. And so what Jesus is saying, you're not supposed to do that. The first person who welcomes you, you just stay at their house and you stay there the whole time that you're there in that city. But then he also says, if they don't welcome you, you're supposed to shake the dust off of your feet and move on to the next town. Now, that's not really something that we do very often or say very often. So what does this whole shaking off the dust mean? Well, to shake off the dust represented shaking off the uncleanness from one's feet. It was basically a sign of rejection. So when the 12 did this, it implied that those who refused their message, who refused to welcome them, were unbelieving, they were defiled and subject to, subject to divine judgment. Um, similar to this is, is maybe the phrase kind of, I, I wash my hands of this or I'm through with this, kind of basically saying, look, I tried to help you, but you're on your own and whatever happens, happens. I can't help you anymore. That's basically what shaking the dust off your feet were. And so he's telling them, look, some people are going to welcome you, but some people are not. Some people are going to reject you. They're not going to want to listen. They're going to be opposed to the message that you are teaching. This is actually a common theme in these verses, because if we go back and we look at what happens after the call of the disciples in chapter 3 and here, we see that usually this call to go is accompanied by opposition. Because right after Jesus calls the disciples in chapter 3, this is what happens. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. And when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And he drives out demons by the ruler of demons, basically saying, Hey, Jesus is crazy, and he's in cahoots with Satan, and that's how he's able to do all of these things, immediately after he calls the disciples. And then we see him call and send out the disciples to preach and teach two by two around the city, and he's going to follow that with some pretty clear opposition in the story of John the Baptist and what happens to him. And so if you remember in Mark, Mark likes to do this kind of sandwich thing where he'll start something, he'll put a story in the middle, and he'll come back to it at the end. So we've seen the, begin, the top piece of bread of the sandwich, and so what we're going to see is the middle, and the middle is what happens to John the Baptist. And we're going to see that John the Baptist definitely experienced some opposition. So this is verses 14 through 29. 
And it says this, And King Herod heard about it, that's Jesus and his mission, because Jesus' name had become well known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. And when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I have beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to train him in, chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, if you, if, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, did, he, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. And so he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard about this, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. And so it begins with a question. Who is Jesus? A question a lot of people have been asking that we've seen in Mark. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say he's a prophet from of old. And just along this line, here's a, here's a challenge bonus question for you this morning, is to actually answer that question. Who is Jesus? And my challenge is, you can't use any scriptural titles you can't use anything that is given to I don't want to say not given to us in Scripture, but all of the words we might choose. But I want you to answer it like this. To someone, answer who is Jesus to someone who has never been to church and has never heard who Jesus is. Which means we can't use the churchy language that we all use because they're not going to understand that. So that's my challenge question to you. Who would you say Jesus is? if you were explaining it to somebody who has never been to church or never heard of Jesus. And then we get to what happened to John. Herod married Herodias, who was the, life, the wife of his half-brother Philip. Um, it was unlawful for him to marry her because Philip was still alive. Now, John had told Herod, and it seems that he did this repeatedly, uh, you can't take your brother's wife, it's basically against the law. And it seems also that Herod at least had some respect for John, so while he didn't listen to him and he still married her, he does seem to protect John because of his faith. So Herod's basically trying to play both sides in this situation. However, his new wife, Herodias, did not feel the same way. She held a grudge against John and was just waiting for the right time to get rid of him. So we have this banquet, there's leaders, there's officials, there's commanders, they're all over for dinner. Um, and for the evening's entertainment, um, Herodias' daughter came in and danced for all of them. 
as entertainment. Now, I have a little sister, and my little sister did dance growing up, and so I went to a lot of dance recitals, um, which was new for us because I have like two brothers, and then we had a sister. So sports was our life, and then we, all of a sudden dance was showing up. So we went to dance recitals. Um, all that to say that what I and you see at a dance recital like that is not the kind of dancing that this daughter was doing. Um, she was doing something a little different that pleased all of the men who were in this gathering. So that's the kind of dancing she was doing, which is weird in itself because it's... Anyway, I don't want to, I need to say more about that. So that's what's happening. They're all excited. Um, Herod says, hey, you entertained us, you pleased us. What can I give you up to half my kingdom? Now, a side note, Herod wasn't actually a king, so he couldn't actually do this because he didn't actually have the authority to give her half of his kingdom because he wasn't actually a king. He was just kind of in that place um, of authority. And so she goes and asks her mother what to ask for, and her mother, who's been waiting for this moment, immediately says, the head of John the Baptist. So the daughter goes in and reports, Herod is distressed because he doesn't actually want to do this. He doesn't want to actually kill John but he's also caught because he's made this promise in front of all of these people. And so the fear of man and keeping his promise and being held in high regard with all of these officials kind of forces him to do something he doesn't really want to do, and he executes John the Baptist. And just a couple of things to note here. One is that, can you imagine, like, if somebody asks you, what's the thing you want most in the world? And your answer is, I want this person to be dead immediately? Like, what kind of grudge, what kind of hatred, what kind of things would be going on in that person's heart to say, hey, the thing I want most in the world, I don't want money, I don't want fame, I don't want any of these other things, I just want this person to be gone. Right? And how wicked that heart must have been. But also, to be careful of the fear of man which is where Herod was, because it causes you to do a lot of things that you don't really want to do, and you probably shouldn't do. And so I think, I know I do, I'm assuming most of us, we do things that we don't really want to do because we want to impress somebody, we want to have a good reputation, we want to be held in high regard, or we want to fit in, or we want to have friends, or we want to get the promotion, or whatever it may be. And so all of that is built on the fear of man, of trying to please men. And that is a dangerous place to be. And so here we have in the story of John an extreme case of opposition for sticking with the truth of the scriptures and trying to help people see that and live by them. And so what we saw with Jesus and the disciples is that not everyone will want to hear, but what we see with John is that some people are going to oppose this message outright. And this is not actually what we expect for John the Baptist, because if you remember back to the story of John the Baptist, we covered some of this um, in our Advent series of John's birth is announced by Gabriel to his parents, and he was known, and everything happened the same way. Then he goes out and says, they tell him, hey, you're going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. And he has all of these followers, and then eventually he baptizes Jesus. And after he baptizes Jesus, this is the next thing we hear about him. And so you have this big buildup of this guy whose birth was prophesied by angels. And he does these great things and it prepares people for the Messiah, even baptizes him. And then this is how he dies. 
He dies because a teenager asked her mom what she wanted, and he's beheaded, right? Not the death you would expect in this situation for someone who was built up to be who John the Baptist was. And so we see that he died seemingly alone at the request of a, a, a young girl. And so following Christ doesn't always lead to notoriety and fame and a great life, right? Like we would expect for someone like John the Baptist who had all of these things going for him. And I think just in addition to this, this made me think of, of people who have grown up and who have, who have been, actually been hurt by the church who have experienced pain and hurt for whatever reason, and they, they have a grudge against the church for whatever has happened to them, just like Herodias did in this situation. And I think we need to be careful in interacting with those people, and we need to be open to hearing and to understanding their pain and their struggles and their heartache, and to listen to them, and to be able to speak the truth to them in a loving way. Right, Because a lot of times we come across, not intentionally, but as unloving and just saying, this is what the Bible says over and over and over again, instead of listening and understanding. So I think this helps us have the mindset of someone who has a grudge against Christianity, which I think we're surrounded by those people on a daily basis. And in light of all that, we get to the end of the sandwich in verses 30 and 31 after what happened to John the Baptist. And it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going so that they did not even have time to eat. And so they returned to be with Jesus. And so this is actually one of the first times they're called apostles, the sent ones. So the one who are sent actually return as the sent ones, the apostles. And I think this kind of brings everything back together. And Jesus says, okay, you've been out there, you've done some things, you've experienced these things. Be prepared as disciples for opposition. Now let's rest and then let's go back out. So that's kind of where this is leading is. We've had Jesus, we've had the disciples, we have John the Baptist, but then how does that connect to us? And I think for us, we should prepare for opposition. We should be prepared to struggle for hard things, for things to happen. But what do we do in the midst of that? Well, one, we trust that God will provide. This is exactly what we saw with the disciples that God will give you what you need for the journey, for whatever he asks you to do, whatever he calls you to do, whatever that may be, that he will provide everything that you will need. And for the people in this room, he may provide for you when you step out in faith, or he may be asking you to provide for someone else who is in need, who needs resources, who needs something a place to stay, or whatever it may be to continue on their journey. So I think he may use this for either one of those. But to remember that God's provision is sufficient. We continue in, the strength on the, in his strength on the journey of discipleship. So he gives us all the resources God does materialistically and spiritually and physically that we need. There are verses, the scriptures are filled with verses of God giving us even the strength. Like what I'm doing right now, God is literally giving me the strength to be able to do this. 
He has given me the words to say to be able to preach and proclaim his word. He is doing all of that. And so God provides not just for us spiritually, but in all avenues so that we can do what he is calling us to do. We also need to persist in the mission. We keep going. Even when it's hard, even when you're tired, even when you're depressed, even when you're weary, even when you're weak or joyful or you're stuck, right? It's, this is the greatest mission that any of us could ever live or accomplish because this mission to follow Christ and to share that with others doesn't just affect what happens on this earth for our lifetimes, but it actually affects what happens for all of eternity for us and even for others. Right? A mission that makes a lasting impact throughout all eternity is the greatest thing that we could ever be a part of. And so what we want here is disciples to persist in fulfilling their mission despite the opposition they may experience. And then I want you to remember that you are not alone. And if you experience opposition, if you experience persecution... Um, we have, there are others who have gone before us. We just saw John um, go through what he went through. And just real quick, because I think this is interesting, and I think it will help us kind of connect the dots to what Jesus has done, is there are a lot of parallels between what happened to John and what happens to Jesus. Both of them are referred to at some level as Elijah the prophet. Both are arrested for teaching and preaching the truth of the Scriptures to people who didn't really want to hear it. Both are arrested and condemned by reluctant men. Herod considers John holy and righteous and doesn't really want to kill him. Pilate, when we get to the end of Jesus' life, does not consider Jesus to be an evildoer. Remember, he says, I wash my hands of this, meaning I don't really want to do this. Both of them died seemingly alone, John in prison, and if you remember, Jesus in the garden, when they come to arrest him, all his disciples take off and leave him. And then we have the way that they were buried. Herod gave John's disciples permission to bury his corpse, as Pilate permitted Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus. And so what we're seeing here in these parallels is that, and what we saw actually from chapter 1, is that this is the journey of discipleship is you follow Christ wherever it leads, wherever it takes. We see what happened with John, that he was arrested, that he was taken away, that he was killed. We sort of know because of where we are in history, that's exactly what's going to happen to Jesus. And then we're going to see it in the disciples. And then the question is going to be, well, what does that mean for us? Because we're, just in the, we're in this chain of what happens to John and Jesus and the disciples, most of whom were also killed for their faith. And so we need to stick with it and realize that we are not alone. And it made me think of, of these verses in the end of Hebrews chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, just to kind of remind us, to sort of encourage us um, that we are in this, that people have suffered and have gone on in their faith, but we can continue. And it says this in the end of, end of um, Hebrews 11, starting in verse 35, this is, We've just heard in the beginning of chapter 11 of Hebrews, um, great stories of faith, of what I sometimes call the hall of faith of great people who did great things for God. But this is what happens at the end of the chapter. Other people were tortured and not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. 
Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were stoned, they were sawed in two, they died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. And these are the verses you're going to know. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it's a reminder that lots of people have suffered for their faith. They've experienced opposition. But in the end, they actually received joy. Did you, did you hear what, what it said about Jesus? For the joy set before him, for what was coming after, for the glory of being in heaven, of being with God, of accomplishing his mission, he was despised, he was rejected. He offered himself to be crucified for us so that we could have life. He did all of that because he knew at the end there would be joy. And the same thing is true for us this year. I don't, it may be harder than last year. We don't actually know that yet, right? But the opposition that we may experience to continue to seek him, to continue to follow him, to overcome all of the obstacles, to say, I am going to do this, and I'm going to walk together with people who are around me who are also following this mission. And together, we can make a difference. We can follow God's call to serve him and to lead others. And so I think this year, I know it's not the most cheerful, go do all of your great New Year's resolution things, but I think it's encouraging at, at some level because we're all in this together. Because I think we need to be ready for opposition and for difficulties. We, you know the world that we live in. It's increasingly more difficult to outrightly be a Christian in the world around us. But I think we should be prepared, and I think some of this may sound familiar, because sometimes opposition comes in the form of questions. Right? How can you believe that? It's old and outdated. It's not even true anymore. Or in hearing the beliefs of Christians, the question we hear sometimes is, do you hate me? Do you condemn my lifestyle because of what you believe? Sometimes opposition comes in the form of rejection. Right? Like the disciples, they were not welcomed. We may hear the same thing. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I'm fine on my own. And though not as much by us, but around the world, it also comes in the form of persecution and death. That people in this world, on this planet, are being killed for their faith. Now, we are very fortunate and to not have to worry about that. But in all of those situations, we are to rely on God and serve Him wholeheartedly, pressing on, remembering that we are following Him, even if it's opposed, even if it's difficult, because it's better than anything that we could ever do on our own. 
And so in light of all of that, actually in light of knowing that there will be opposition both within ourselves and our own temptations and desires and wants that are in conflict with what God wants us to do, there's going to be opposition in the world around us, maybe in our families or in our workplaces or in what's happening in the culture. But in the midst of all of that, I still think that we can do great things for Christ this year, that we can see great things happen in the life of our church. We can see people saved, people baptized, people growing and being more mature in their faith of leading others to Christ as well, of seeing the journey of discipleship, the chain of discipleship continue through us, of us helping others to see the light and the power of what happened on the cross when Jesus died for us. And so yes, it may be hard, it may be difficult, but I've prepared you for that this morning, right? So whatever comes, we're ready to serve, to follow, whatever the challenge may be, to know that God will provide. He will give us everything that we need to encounter that, to overcome it, to work through that. And at the end, whatever happens, we will experience the joy of being with Him. That as we follow Him wholeheartedly, we can receive the joy of being with God forever. And we can actually help other people experience the same thing. And so that's the real challenge is let's continue to be on mission, continue to serve him, to follow him wherever he calls us to go. You guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We, I, don't, I sometimes just want to thank you just for putting stories like this in Scripture that we know that if we are experience, experiencing pain or hardship or trouble, especially because of our faith, that we are not alone. It's not just us, but there's many who have gone before who are experiencing the same things. There are um, older believers even in this room who have been through what we've been through, who can help guide us. And I pray that we would seek each other's wisdom, we would seek each other's encouragement, each other's help, so that we can serve you wholehearted, that we can overcome the challenges and the opposition, whether they come from within or from without. But that through us and in us, you will do great things, not so that necessarily our building will be full or that anything like that, but so that your name will be glorified, so that your name will be done, so that we will look at, go, when we come to January of next year, we will look back and say, look at what God has done. And the only reason these things happened is because of God in his blessings provided those things for us. So God, we pray for you to draw people to us in our individual lives so that we can share the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, the hope of your sacrifice for our sins on the cross. We pray that you would use us, that we would be good stewards of our time and energy and resources so we can do that well, so that we can celebrate together and celebrate new life in Christ of those in our relationships, of our friends and co-workers and families around us. God, we pray that you will lead us, you will guide us, and that we will follow you even when it gets hard, even when it gets difficult, even when we want to get up, even if we're tired and weary. 
that you would give us the strength to rely on you, to trust in you, and know that you will provide all that we need. So help us to trust in you and to continue the mission of being your disciples. In your name I pray. Amen.